Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center. And you can also find this link in the show notes. Today, we will talk about building a robust corporate strategy in a volatile world. And volatile, I think, is the right term for the current international environment that we live in. And to discuss this, as always, we have a guest. And today, that is Famke Krumpmüller. Famke is an executive director in the Geostrategic Business Group at EY, where she provides EY's clients and teams with actionable political insights to help them understand how politics impact their business and how they think about strategies to anticipate and manage those political risks. And uh, before joining EY... Famke headed a Paris-based innovative strategy consultancy in the space of political risks and public affairs, which uh, she co-founded. Uh, she was also based in London previously, where she was responsible for covering Western European countries at a renowned political risk firm. Maybe she will tell us which one that was. Maybe she wouldn't. Uh, we will see. As a Forbes Europe policy and law list maker and regular contributor to the, the media, she's an experienced and recognized commentator of European politics and a public speaker. Her academic background is in European affairs and political economy, which she studied at Maastricht University and at the LSE and also at Sciences Po in Paris. That is an impressive CV, Famke, and we're very glad to have you on this show, particularly because you work right on the spot where this podcast is also located, namely at the nexus between business and politics, geopolitics, international relations. So... Maybe let's begin with volatile. I said that the world is volatile and maybe it is particularly so, but is that is that really true? Is that just an impression that we have that times are particularly volatile? Or would you say that they have basically always been like this? It's just that the topics change, the actors change, the challenges change. What would you say? Thank you, first of all, Matthias, for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you and discuss these very interesting topics with you today. I mean, so I've been in the political risk business, let's say, for more than 10 years. And I can definitely say that um, it it feels much more uncertain and volatile today and over the past 24 months than it has in the past. We also have data that shows it that the level of political risk has gone up quite steadily since around 2015, so around the time when things like Brexit and um, the election of Trump in the United States started to happen. That being said, definitely there is always something going on. I remember covering the European sovereign debt crisis with big worries about the Eurozone falling apart and then as I just said, Brexit. And so, yes, to a certain extent, there's always some volatility, but um, I think the density and the intenseness and, and the global levels of volatility that we've seen over the past 24 months are definitely extraordinary. 
So when we talk about political risk from a business perspective, what does that mean? How, what, how do you understand political risk for businesses? Yes, so political risk is the umbrella concept, let's say, to talk about four types of political risk. There's geopolitical risk, which is what we're all talking about a lot these days. Um, so that is about the risks and maybe also the opportunities coming from the relationships between countries. There is what we call country risk, often um, also called political risk, which is let's say, more about national developments such as elections and things like that in a specific country. And then there's regulatory risk and societal risk, which I think speak for themselves. And all of these are developments, if we want to use a word that englobes kind of risks and opportunities, um, developments that are driven by politics and that will matter to or impact uh, businesses operating in that country or dealing with that country in one way or another. Can you give us an example of a political risk that um, has recently shown up that has affected maybe a particular sector, a particular business, maybe even a client of yours, if you're allowed to talk about those things? Of course, I need to almost think about which one I'm going to cite. I mean, I can cite the most obvious one, such as um, the war in Ukraine. That is a geopolitical risk. The relationship of the United States with China, that is a geopolitical risk. Country risk, I'm based in Paris. The pension reform in France, that is a classic country-level risk. And then societal risk, I'll give you one example per category. Societal risk, we've seen, for example, over the past couple of months, heightened level of social unrest in different countries for different reasons, often linked to the cost of living or to specific reforms, such as in France. Um, and then regulatory risk, I can cite, for example, the fact that the commission just published an updated pharmaceutical legislation. And that will matter a lot to pharmaceutical companies, for example. Those are, I mean, the most prominent that come to mind today. That can be different tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think talking about these things in hindsight, uh, they may seem obvious, right? So it's, it's always clear now, you know, from what we know today, that maybe doing business in Russia or with Russia was not such a good idea. So we know that, right? And a lot of companies, they had to move out voluntarily or because they were forced by, by sanctions and, and other things. The question is, of course, uh, can you, how can you proactively address these challenges before something happened and, and maybe even before it's known because with China, I mean, I think everyone who reads the news or follows the news knows that the situation is um, difficult and it might get worse, worse to the level of there might be war, which we won't hope, but the possibility, I guess, exists. But from a business perspective, how do I... I operate on these uh, these issues. I mean, should I pull out of China just uh, because there may be a conflict uh, over Taiwan or should I pull out of Taiwan for that matter? Do I hedge my bets uh, in terms of, you know, mitigating risks, maybe having different supply chains? How do I handle these kind of situations uh, from a, from a business perspective? There are many, many things that you can do in order to implement what we would call a geostrategy. So really kind of a holistic approach to managing political risk. And we think about it in three steps. So in the first step, what is very important is to scan the environment for what are the political risks that are out there. Um, you can do a horizon scanning exercise that will be a little bit more long-term looking. You can scan for this year. 
etc. Identify the political developments that are out there and that will be relevant to your business. Then evaluate the probability of these happening uh, and the timeline and things like that. And then in the second step, you you focus on what this will mean for your business, for different business functions. What are the implications of all of these developments that you have identified that allows you to uh, think about the impact? So what's the impact really on me as a business? These two already combined is quite interesting because... There can be political developments that are very prominently reported that won't necessarily matter to you as a business. And there can be developments that are kind of not yet spoken about a lot, or maybe the media doesn't care or whatever, but it will actually matter a lot to you. So that's where it's very different from just following the media, let's say. Um, and then in a, the third step is the biggest and most important st step is to, of course, act based on these findings. Um, and that essentially means integrating this into your business strategy. When you think about making new investments, which countries do you go to? When you think about your supply chains, where are they? Who am I dependent on? Um, etc. It's about um, integrating it into risk management, so um, enterprise risk management processes. Political risk is something that needs to be updated regularly. Maybe that's different from your current risk management process and things like that. And then the third aspect, often underestimated, is to create a governance structure that uh, allows you to, yeah, to have an effective management of all of this, what I just mentioned, in place and to do it regularly and proactively, etc. From your experience working with all sorts of different clients, I guess, what are some of the common mistakes that companies make when addressing or maybe not addressing political risks? There are many things to talk about. I mean, I think what's important to understand is that coherent, systematic, proactive political risk management is something that very few companies do. Um, There is no established methodology out there that has been around for 20 years, has been tested and approved and everybody does it. Certainly not. It's something that is currently evolving a little bit more rapidly as companies are more impacted by it and are um, trying to update the way that they think about this. Um, and so there are many, many things that need to be adapted. One example is that... Uh, A lot of companies still have one line in their enterprise risk management register that says geopolitical risk. And that is, you know, from today's perspective, that's not valuable. It's way too high level. It's not updated enough. Um, so there needs to be more, more detail in there. The other thing that often happens is that it doesn't happen proactively. So companies only deal with this once they already have a problem. Then they set up a committee to deal with it or you know, they, they change their approach. So this regularly and proactive are two things that are extremely important and that often get underestimated. I always um, say that uh, they installed the alarm after uh, they got broken into. Which I guess is something that is also human in, to a certain extent, exactly right? right. <laughs> so, That's why I say it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Following up on that, I mean, one could also argue that, you know, should companies bother? Uh, is it even possible or is it desirable or is it something that is basically so much out of their control that they should not even care about it? They should focus on their core competencies uh, of doing business, developing and selling whatever products uh, they offer. And then, you know, if something impacts them in a political way, they just have to deal with it and, and maybe write off some investments or whatever it is. I mean, because obviously... 
being prepared also has its costs, right? And not just in the terms of the time, maybe, you know, the consultancy fees that, you know, people have to pay, but also in terms of distracting from the core reason or raison d'etre of, of a company. Ooh, I don't know. On the last one, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, I think it's it's a completely false perception to say that you can't manage it, that you can't deal with it. I definitely get that a lot. The question around, well, I can't do anything about it. So that's not true. You can do many things about it. And to use a very concrete example of why political risk management might be a good uh, use of your time and, and, and money, is when we think about Russia and, and the war in, in Ukraine, that is something that was not necessarily anticipated, sure, but um, there was scenario planning. Scenario planning clearly predicted that one of the possibilities was a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And as a business, if you had done your political risk management the right way, you would have had these scenarios, uh, you would have had the time ahead of the invasion to evaluate what is my potential exposure if this happens? Does it therefore maybe make sense for me to start planning or to take action? Some some businesses took action before it happened. If you decide that you're not as exposed, um, that it would make sense to now take action based on a low likelihood scenario, which is what it clearly was, well then, you can at least already think through what will we do internally once this happens? Are we ready to react to the situation? You can plan for the process. Um, you can put all of this in place, even if it was the low probability scenario. Businesses often make the mistake to ignore the low probability high impact scenario. And that's where the high impact part, that's where you should plan for it. I mean, now, obviously, a lot of businesses then were in the situation where all of a sudden they faced sanctions, closures, it was too late, too complicated. A lot of businesses actually even waited longer until they acted because then the war had started um, and they thought it was going to get better and it got more complicated. Mm. So an understanding so, yeah. of the situation um, is critical and is the main precondition. I understand. So those are, I guess, what's often called the black swans, right? Uh, is that uh, what you're talking about? Things that are not... I mean, a black swan, the definition of a black swan is an event that w was not predictable and has a high impact. Arguably, the invasion of Ukraine, for example, was not completely unpredictable. It was low probability. It's like a lot of people tend to called a pandemic the black swan wasn't a black swan the world economic forum had talked 10 years ahead of the pandemic happening that this was a risk one day black swan is really something that is completely unpredictable um, mm. now for example uh, let's talk about china because i mean that's certainly not a black swan because uh, everybody's talking about it so i couldn't tell you the probability i hope that it's uh, still very low of something major happening there but It's certainly something that a lot of people are talking about. So if you were advising a corporation that has business with China, either selling there, producing there, or having some kind of a supply chain, and I guess that probably applies to a lot of companies around the world in one way or another, what would you advise them? Because they certainly cannot influence it, right? I mean, so Xi Jin, neither Xi Jinping nor Joe Biden is probably going to call, even if I'm the CEO of a very large multinational company, they're not going to call me and, and ask me, you know, is it a suitable moment or not? Should we wait? So, <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, in general, the way that we think about this is um, 
again, scenarios. Scenario planning is really the best thing that you can do in the world of high uncertainty. Um, think through what are the different options? What would that look like? What would be the consequences? What would it mean for me and my business, etc.? It's really the most basic thing. And you can play this out for US-China relations, EU-China relations, um, China-Taiwan. All of these issues, you can scenario plan for it. That's the first thing. The second thing in general right now, um, there is a, a trend towards more self-sufficiency, more self-reliance, um, therefore more interventionism into the economy um, as, and this is not just Chinese or an American thing, it's also a European thing, the Europeans call it strategic autonomy, and that has a lot, a lot of consequences. And one of the one of the most interesting ones, I think, is to think in terms of strategicness of a sector. So the more strategic a sector is to national security, but national security broadly defined, the more likely businesses in that sector will be exposed to government interventionism. Um, and that can mean a lot of things that can go from incentives to produce in a certain part of the world, all the way down to sanctions, uh, prohibitions to export or, or something like that. And so if you are a company in a strategic sector, which is a, an evolving concept, then you need to be thinking much more about what do the governments in the regions in which I am think, how are their, their relations evolving um, and how could it impact me? If you're in a less strategic sector, you might be less directly impacted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, sometimes I, I understand this, and and but there are also situations where companies are increasingly being forced uh, to pick sides, right? And I think this is something that happens in in geopolitical situations. You know, where are you on one side? Are you do you business with Taiwan or do you do business with mainland China? Uh, but also maybe on a, on a smaller scale to maybe move on to a bit of a different topic. You you mentioned societal uh, risks. I, I'm just thinking you're probably following that as well. Um, the the conflict that Disney is uh, in in the U.S. right now, where they're involved in in a in a fight with the governor of Florida over essentially societal issues and the questions of you know gay rights and and whatnot, where suddenly a company is um, yeah is is being. I would say pushed around or, you know, is subject to pressures from different sides to behave or to voice opinions in one way or another. Is that also something that wasn't the case maybe 20 or 30 years ago? Is that also something that has increased? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I think one of the main things, my view is that we are now in a world in which companies cannot be apolitical anymore. And a lot of companies like to believe that or like to hide themselves behind this concept. And that is, of course, fully understandable. You maybe don't, you're not interested in and don't want to go in these spheres. But um, maybe the bad news in that case is that um, it's simply not going to work anymore because we are moving right now into a direction of a much more divided and fragmented world, which means there are sides to be on or that you will be pushed towards to and it means that you can find yourself in a situation where you are for example compliant um, in one part of the world and not compliant anymore in the other part of the world but you can't be compliant in both at the same time and that is increasingly going to be a challenge and it also means that companies need to understand that 
some decisions that they make um, will necessarily also be a political decision to the extent that um, they will decide to produce in certain parts of the world or to sell in certain parts of the world, whether they like it or not. And I think it's incredibly important to be aware of that and to make the link to um, the societal aspect of this. It's about thinking about your stakeholders as well, right? So what will, for example, your consumers think if you are... Um, active in certain parts of the world or do certain things. These are decisions that you make, your stakeholders, your consumers, for example, maybe also your employees, they will um, have an opinion and maybe not everybody will agree. Could that also mean that we're, we will see a fragmentation on the company side in the sense is that there will be geopolitical fragmentation, there will be a mobile companies that will sell in, in Europe, mobile companies that will sell in, in China, for example, but also maybe to link it back to the societal questions, uh, there will be an ice cream for people who are pro-gay rights and an ice cream that are for people who are against. I, I'm not, I don't want to argue about the kind of the content matter, which position is right or wrong. I guess we all have our opinions there, but could that happen? Even things that on the surface don't have anything to do with that political issue, for example. I mean, to a certain extent, it is already happening when you see that um, all the legislation around tech, around data is already moving into a much more fragmented space and you need to implement different data policies depending on where you are, meaning that you can't transfer them across the borders anymore, etc. I think it has already started to be and currently looks as if it will more and more move into this direction. Yes, of a fragmentation in that in what you mentioned almost as a side effect because it will be much easier even you know some companies have started to go for different brands and different markets because it will be easier to navigate but but yes fragmentation kind of filtering through hmm. which then will probably also lead to what uh, many people fear is that we're seeing a maybe not an end to globalization but at least a, a retreat from from globalization with all the economic costs that also entails i guess Yes, I mean, so I, I I, always like to make sure to disagree with the idea of the end of globalization. I think the way to think about it is maybe the end of the current form of globalization or the past form of globalization that we have seen for decades. So that's quite significant, of course. And now the question is, where are we going? So we have done some scenario analysis around that too. And we can definitely say that currently it looks, it looks as if we're moving away from the most open and liberal form of globalization that we have seen for a long time, which is also, of course, the world on which a majority of companies have based their business model, their supply chains, their way of functioning, etc. And that now will require a very significant rethink if you accept that over the next couple of years we might be going into a direction of a more fragmented world. Now, it could be a world that is what we call friends first world. So one where the concepts such as friend sharing will be important in strategic sectors, but outside of strategic sectors, uh, it will remain relatively liberal. But we could also go much more into um, a Cold War II type world with really much stricter divisions between two mm. or three blocks. Beginning of March, I was in, in Delhi at the Resina Dialogue and there was a lot of talk. I mean, there were a lot of people from the global south and also Europeans and Americans, of course. And there was a lot of conversation around this, uh, the West against the rest. Uh, is that something that you see happening? 
I mean, we, I think since the war in Ukraine started, rhetorically, that is definitely what has been happening. We see this Cold War, Cold War rhetoric coming back um, and this block logic and this thinking in blocks. Now, what has evolved, I think, and will continue to is that maybe we currently even have three blocks. So one led by the US and the EU, one by China and then in Russia, and a third block of countries, of which definitely India and others are a part, that is the unaligned, the fence-sitters, the swing states, whatever you want to call them. Very similar to what it, how it was in the Cold War, I guess, right? I mean, maybe not with Russia and China to that extent. That is interesting, and especially with India, which, um, yeah, I, I know quite well. Um, it's, it's very complicated because, yeah, on the one side, we see that they are not aligned with uh, Western countries when it comes to Ukraine. On the other hand, of course, there is also a very high interest in um, coordinating with uh, Western countries when it comes to China, which is a completely different matter. So it's complicated to use the, the old Facebook status. Yes. <laughs> And from a, from a business perspective, what is complicated about that is um, I think it's very important to understand that the risk around swing states is, the, is that they could swing into one direction or another and then all of a sudden they might be part of the block of which you as a business are maybe not part and, and that can create, if you haven't thought about this, that can create complicated uh, situations. Which countries, I think this is interesting, is that, you know, you maybe wake up and then one country is suddenly in a different corner. Do you think, is it something that affects democracies more than authoritarian regimes? Because I think we've seen it, for example, in Brazil with a change in government recently that I think is also more complicated. There are, I guess, pros and cons, but it has also led to a quite significant change, I think, in the international position of Brazil vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, Russia, and so on and so forth. We see it in South Africa. I just read, you know, the other day, a South African president announced uh, that they were pulling out of the International Criminal Court. Now, apparently, they don't uh, because they want to invite uh, Putin and they might have to arrest him, at least legally, they would be obliged to. So is it is something that affects democracies more or would you say that authoritarian regimes are inherently less predictable because they are prone to such sharp uh, swings? Ironically, I would argue that authoritarian states to a certain extent can be much more predictable um, in democratic states you will get elections you might get change in government that will take a different stance uh, so I'm not sure how big the link is but when when we think and, and I mean we cited some of the countries that are that are these swing states right now Brazil India South Africa Turkey for example very important Again, from also from a business perspective, a lot of opportunities in these countries. Some are very resource rich. Um, they obviously also get their geopolitical power from that. And so it's really these middle powers are the ones that I think um, we need to be thinking about a lot. Um, and that will matter also even more in the future because they have a lot of... Um, power from where they sit yeah yeah that's interesting also turkey you mentioned that there sometimes you have the impression that it's uh, basically on a daily basis uh, there are some swings depending on the mood of the president uh, to a certain extent a bold prediction the world in 10 years uh, Famke, we have one segment in this uh, show that we ask all our guests and it's called a bold prediction uh, the world in 10 years 
Now, you're, uh, to a certain extent, you're in the business of maybe not forecasting, but helping your clients uh, to foresee and uh, prepare for situations. So my question to you in all these topics that we've been discussing, what is your prediction? How will the world look like in 10 years from now? So I'm, I'm going to cheat and I will talk about the world in five years because that is actually also the name of that scenario analysis that we did on where is globalization going and we sat down and we thought about the world in five years. World in five years because you can credibly predict world in five years and that's where we found that we're currently moving away from globalization and and into direction of more of a world in which the nature of geopolitical alliances will matter much, much more than in the past. And probably a world where at the very least, who's your friends will matter and maybe even who's in your block will matter much more. The other thing, as I just said, I, what I think will be very important in five and, and then even more in 10 years is these countries which are on the rise right now. And that will change a lot. And The obvious one is China, but there are others beyond China, countries that are big economies that will see a lot of population growth, India, certain African countries. These are the countries I think that we need to be thinking about in 10, 15, 20 years time. Okay, very interesting. And obviously, we'll make sure to put a link to that study. Is it publicly available, that study? Yeah, yes. yeah we'll, we'll yes, put yes. a link in the show notes so that people can read in more detail what this is about and what you're foreseeing there in five years. And obviously, we accept that you cheated a little bit. But I understand that, uh, of course, 10 years, is, especially in these volatile situations, it's extremely difficult to, to predict. I would like to move on to a slightly different or connected topic because we, we talked about the possibilities of influencing some of these things. And obviously, if we're at the very kind of large macro geopolitical level, I think it's very difficult for any company, no matter the size, to really have an active role. But when we talk about regulatory risks, for example, societal risks, those others that you mentioned, uh, of course, companies can try to to be engaged in different countries that are important to them. How can companies build up uh, political connections, political networks, especially outside their home markets? One thing that is very important um, for all companies, kind of independent of how far they go in terms of directly engaging with policymakers, is to have people that really understand the local market, that are in the market, that understand the local politics, how things are working, what is important, because it gives you a better chance of, of, of accurately predicting what will happen next. Now, that sounds very simple, and a lot of companies have this. And this is where I come back to what I said about governance. A lot of companies are just not um, currently in a position where they actually tap into these people on a regular and proactive basis and make sure that the information that they hold down in their functions in these countries, for example, actually gets back up to the team or the person responsible for political risk, if there is such a person, or to global government affairs or to the C-suite or the board, people who need to be aware of what's happening in the country. So having somebody on the ground who understands, who holds the responsibility, who's able to engage with policymakers, with other companies in the same sector, I think that is um, amongst the most important things. So basically a local presence in probably not every country because, you know, there are 190 countries. If you're yeah. selling something <laughs> everywhere, you can't do that, but you will have to identify which are your most important 
Markets. For your most important markets and maybe also for the most complex markets, the ones that are the most different from where you're headquartered or what you have a good understanding for when I say you, you C-suite, the person responsible, then that's very important. And then the second thing is to have a dedicated centralized team or function that has an understanding and who which follows this. We also recommend have, having somebody on the board with a background in politics in the broadest sense of the world so that they can understand, ask the right questions. Yeah. And then, I mean, that's, I guess, what used to be called lobbying or classical lobbying. I think now at least uh, those working in this field prefer other terms like public affairs because, you know, it got a bit of a bad rep, uh, I suppose, this this idea or the reputation of might be a bit shady. But I think one important question is, especially if we're talking about international engagement in in countries that, you know, have maybe different uh, regimes, different systems, also different government structures. How do you see in this field of influencing or trying to work with political connections the ethical aspect? So do you think it's ever justifiable for a company to engage in something that I wouldn't say straight it would be straight illegal? That may be an easy question, but there is some gray zone, let's put it that way, right? Depending on where you operate. How do you see that? How can companies find a good middle ground between yeah, being totally safe and clear and um, but still being able to get things done in some of countries where it's maybe more difficult? I mean, that is a very complicated question. I I think companies need to keep their stakeholders in, in mind. And this is, this is not necessarily their shareholders, but their stakeholders. So their employees, the people that will buy their product, um, they have, they need to understand that these people will more and more look at what the company is doing. What are the practices that are used to operate, again, in the broadest sense of the word. And I think there needs to be um, consistency um, at the risk of if you ignore that, of your stakeholders disapproving. So just to be very kind of open-eyed and aware of that. I guess that depends on what kind of product you have, right? I guess there's a difference between, you know, if you're a textile company, for example, um, that may be one thing because you're selling direct to consumers. Other examples, I'm thinking of oil companies, for example, that have traditionally, I think for many, many decades, worked with and invested in countries that were difficult to work with because for one reason or another, a lot of the natural resources, a lot of oil tends to be in countries that have difficult regimes. So I think they're probably more used to doing like dirty work, uh, if I may say so. I mean, things have changed. So first of all, there's a lot, a lot of regulation out there that tries to make sure that companies operate within more or less strict uh, regulatory environment. But certainly if you're an EU or a company that is submitted to EU law, we are getting increasing supply chain, due diligence legislation, forced labor legislation. So you can really see that the regulator as well as the stakeholder is increasingly kind of narrowing in on any type of gray zone activities I really fundamentally believe that it is in companies' interest to take this into account and, mm. and, and, and make sure that uh, they operate according to these standards. Because whether they like it or not, but increasingly um, it, it will be, I would argue, impossible to... Um, to continue to okay. do certain things. Yeah, yeah. So would you say that at least for multinational companies, it is much more difficult to just bribe an official in, in, in some faraway country to get things done so that that's not as easy as it used to be in the past? 
I mean, definitely the world has changed big times on these things and, and a lot, a lot, a lot through very strict regulation. And again, as, as a company, I think, and it comes back to this idea of you can't be apolitical. I mean, you have a responsibility. Mm. Um, and I think that's what companies need to understand, um, that they have a responsibility and they're increasingly being held, held accountable by not just um, their shareholders, but by a much broader group of people. That's an excellent segue to another uh, topic that I wanted to address, and that is uh, CSR, uh, so Corporate Social Responsibility. How does that feed into that? Is that just another burden uh, put on companies so they now don't only have to look out for you know geopolitical risk, but they also have to make sure that they don't step on anyone's toes when it comes to sustainability, to their corporate responsibility? Or is it something that may also help them address some of these uh, political risks that we've been discussing so far? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, in general, ESG is super central to how how companies operate and how um, and what will be central to what they do in the future. Um, we have started to argue that um, the G has now become the geopolitics in there, so there is definitely a link and. When you think about it, of course, climate change and all of these developments are very much linked to political risk and how much politics deals with it. And again, we're really moving towards a world where um, it is about society as a stakeholder in the broadest sense. And um, that's where companies have to win on all fronts if they implement these things as soon as possible and proactively because those who don't will anyway be forced by the by the regulator to do it certainly in in the eu executive briefing what you should read now we ask our guests to come up with one or two can also be three ideas books, journal articles, blog posts, whatever it is that our listeners can look at if they want to dive a little bit deeper into uh, into what we've been discussing here. That is a great question. I, of course, read a lot of things. And again, I will cheat because I'm very convinced that the one thing that you should read is that scenario analysis that I have spoken about. Also, because I, I still keep on having the conversation where I get asked, are you sure that this is not all just going to go back to where we were before within the next 12 months? And I'm I'm just like, well, I, I maybe don't know many things these days, but um, we won't be going back. So I think... And, kind of accepting that we've, we're moving towards a new world and trying to think through what could this new world look like. I think that's important. Of course, there are other analysis out there. There's other analysis out there around um, what this world could look like. I do think there isn't surprising amounts of consistency. So that's, um, that's interesting. Um, I will say another book that I have recently read, and this is every business leader needs to have read this, is a book called Invisible Women by a um, Brazilian author. She lives in London and she uses a lot of data to show the role of women in society and in business. And it's extremely interesting and mind-blowing. Everybody should have read this. So I'll put this out there too. Fantastic. Very interesting. And yeah, I agree that having more women in power would probably not solve every problem, but I think it's fair to assume that uh, the world might be a better place. Well, but studies have been done, very interesting, linking it back to politics now. Um, studies have been done that countries led by women, for example, fared better during the pandemic. Oh, okay. So 
Very interesting yeah. to think about it from that perspective. No, that's a good recommendation. I will make sure to put links to both uh, the suggestion, the study, uh, the forecast that you mentioned, and the book about women. We'll put them in the show notes so our listeners can go there and uh, find the book uh, and the other publications. <laughs> We're already at the end of uh, this episode. It was a very, very interesting, uh, very volatile topic, as the uh, the title episode suggests. So I guess uh, we might uh, have to schedule a follow-up conversation in some time where we can look at what ways things have five years. out. In five years at the latest. Talk I about what happened. <laughs> no idea where we'll be, be there, whether this podcast will still exist, but we'll, we'll put it in our Outlook calendars. Famke, thank you very much for this uh, conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you liked the show, please make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. And finally, you can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.